Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on The Art of Range is Sean Alexander. He's a Extension Forester with Washington State University uh, in Northeastern Washington. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, Tip. Thanks for having me out today. I think I got your title correct, but uh, what does what exactly do you do? I have some idea since I work for WSU Extension, but <laughs> yeah. for those who are, there are, will be some people that are not so familiar with uh, forestry in the context of Extension. Uh, so just by way of introduction, you know, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, you know, every time I, I always think about the the question, what do I do for my work? It's it's always hard to describe with extension um, because I think extension coordinators and extension faculty we do quite a bit of stuff. Um, so if I were to describe what I do, I would actually go back to the the beginning of why extension even started. Right, and there's those old photos that you can go get at the um, I think it's called the Mask. It's an acronym M A S C. I don't I don't recall what it stands for, but it's an old archive that WSU has. And there's photos in there of the original extension coordinators hopping on the backs of trains. And they would ride these trains from Pullman out to the surrounding towns. And they would stand there and give lectures from the backs of the trains. You know, back in the day, it was largely just, you know, here's the newest wheat variety. And, you know, if you spray this, then you'll get rid of this insect. So, you know, if I were to describe my job, I would say that what I do is, is I take education, um, in in the forestry field, the forestry sector, and I extend that to the multitude of small forest landowners in Washington State. Yeah, I I can't remember now whether or not we've talked about some of the the history of extension on the podcast. In trying to tell other people, sometimes what I do, I do the same thing. I go back to the idea behind land grant universities, which was that there was this these new fields of agricultural <clears throat> and material science and food science that was sort of new in the world of higher education. Prior to that point, most of higher education had been a liberal arts education, which yeah. some people kind of look down on. But the idea behind even the liberal arts education was that these were the things people needed to know in order to be, in order to be free people to exercise liberty. Yeah. But then you had these land grant colleges that were set up to to do more, you know, practical research in specifically agricultural sciences, food science, uh, and some of the building trades. And the idea behind extension was that it doesn't do much good for us to be doing a lot of research on agriculture if farmers don't have any access to that research base. Yeah. And so uh, extension was put into place in the early part of the previous century in order to get uh, to extend the, th these research results from the land-grant universities out to people that could actually use it and, and make a living better based on better data. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting. I don't know a, a ton about your listener base, but... You know the the WSU in in many many of the land grant schools around the United States, 
you know, they have animal science programs, they have agricultural programs. And so I think a lot of farmers, they'll send their kids to go off to college and get a degree in this. And then hopefully they come back to the farm and, you know, they apply some of that information that they learned in college. Well, there's an interesting uh, phenomena that happens with forest landowners in that you don't necessarily see people making a livelihood out of owning forest land. So there's not the same educational background in in uh, in the landowners that we serve. And so what ends up happening is, so just yeah. to throw some numbers, we have 217,000 small forest landowners. When we define small forest landowners, there's a couple ways. Uh, some people define it as the amount of board feet that you harvest. I tend to not like that example just because it... it it really, it really narrows down the discussion of you know who can be included in that conversation. And I know people that harvest a lot and you know manage it really well on not large acreages. And I know people who own a lot of acreages and don't own a lot. So the other way we can define that is uh, it's largely the cutoff line has been five thousand acres. And so when we think about what a small forest landowner is, there's anybody in Washington State who owns forest land under five thousand acres. And when we look at that. It actually ends up being close to about 15% of the forest uh, acreage in Washington state. So that's a huge Mm. proportion of Washington that is Mm -hmm. directly impacted by individuals who usually, not always, but usually don't have a forestry background. And so they need this education. They want this education. And that's what I'm here for. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, maybe to back up just a bit, people may be wondering, why are we talking about forestry in a range podcast? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I guess I would say a, a very large number or large percentage of Western U.S. ranchers either own or graze forest land. Uh, there's an awful lot of dry forest types in the West that have a lot of forage. And in fact, the Forest Service was really where most rangelands and livestock research started uh and and so i think for many for many people either uh, livestock producers or natural resource professionals range professionals uh, we're dealing with forests nearly in the same space that we deal with rangelands and so uh, i think this is important i think i mentioned just before we got on the recording that i almost did a double major in forestry and, and really enjoy Forestry. So I'm excited to talk about this. I also failed to mention when we first got on that uh, Sean has a uh, a new podcast called The Forest Overstory. Is that right? That's correct. And uh, maybe that's a good segue to, to begin to talk about the, the podcast. Uh, why did you start a podcast about forestry? Oh man, I, th- this is the true podcasting dilemma is you say about four things that I, I want to jump into and then you end with a question that's going to take me on a completely different path. So this is great. <laughs> this, I, I knew we weren't going to get to an 30. answer whatever. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get way past 30 minutes on this. Um, all right. So how, how, let's, let's start with the podcast because you ended with that question. Let's see if I can remember to get back to some of the other things. Why did I start a podcast? Well, I think that we are in a major transformational era. You know, like if you look back at the at the 1880s to the, about the 1920s, right? We've defined that era as the industrial revolution. Okay, and so then a lot of people through the 70s, 80s and 90s, especially as we see it continuing to ramp up, we see this technological revolution. 
And so I think it's important that as the, our society and as our culture and as our technology advances, that our education and the means in which academic education uh, is delivered also advances. And one of the ways that have been, you know, exploding in the past is podcasting. And this is probably something, you know, you realize as well, Tip. But there are... Oh, man, I, I don't have the numbers with me in front of me. Um, but I had pulled them up on a recent presentation. It was something crazy. Like, there are 3 million podcasts with 28 mm-hmm. billion hours of recorded time <laughs> out there on the internet. Don't... Again, don't quote those numbers. I'm, I'm probably... Um, over over um emphasizing those but i i think it gets to the point that you know it's it's prominent and i then they were they were looking at statistics yeah. and it was like 15 or 50% of the 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 you know our our population or 50% of the people in the world actively listen to podcasts and then the growing demographics of people that are actively engaging it are you know we already know the 19 to 40 year olds love podcasts but we're seeing that a lot of the 40 to 55 and 55 to like 65 those age groups are starting to realize oh hey check this out you know we grew up on the radio you know we grew up clicking through the am channel as we're driving our old chevy down the highway um and you know you you got on the other crest of the hill and the the static wave started to cut in you're like no what is uh you know whatever the person i'm listening to saying and you know it's always frustrating but it's great that's what we grew up on it's nostal- it's, it's nostalgic and so podcasting, I feel like, kind of fills that niche. Yeah, and I would add to that, at least in the world of livestock producers, there are a lot of people who never owned a desktop computer that just yeah. didn't fit their lifestyle and didn't do much for their workflow. And so there's a lot of ranchers who went straight from, uh, you know, rotary telephones to smartphones. Yeah. And, and with the smartphone, they now have access to all this stuff that that fits a lifestyle where you're not stationary in an office or in a house, uh, you're out doing stuff. Uh, but, but you can, you know, all this world of information is now available to those people, you know, through, through a podcast technology. Yeah, that's precisely right. And I, I think today in today's day and era, you know, we're seeing that the average workload of an individual is increasing, right? We have to do more work today to get the end result that we want, whether that's, you know, as a livestock producer, you know, as a tradesperson, or if that's, you know, as you're, a, I'm going to butcher this, not, I think, white collar worker, I'm trying to remember if it's blue collar or white collar, however they want to define that. But, um, you know, across the board, er- every single individual in, in the United States and probably internationally, you know, we're seeing that workloads are increasing. And so that Using means Using our labor saving devices. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want and, my money back. <laughs> so, well, what that means, though, is that, you know, if, if you're a livestock producer or you're a forest, a forest owner, when are you going to have the time to sit down and, you know, take a class that would teach you how to manage your land? Or when are you going to have the time to read that book? And, you know, especially if, if you're a reader, you've probably got 16 books sitting on your uh, coffee table that you've probably read halfway through half of them. So mm-hmm. the great thing about podcasting that I always hear is, you know, we get people that will send us emails and say, oh, I'm, I'm chopping salad for dinner tonight and I loved your podcast. Or, oh, I was listening to it while I was running on the elliptical this morning. Or, you know, it, you know like us, I was driving to work or I was, you know, doing something mundane and I could just throw on your podcast and enjoy it and multitask at the same time. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's a pretty accurate summary of, of why this is of interest to people. And I think also why there's such a wide variety of podcasts out there. They wouldn't continue to exist if people weren't listening to it. Uh, yeah. You talked a bit about, let's see, what else did I say that you wanted to respond to? Well, so one, one of the things, things you was said, the combination of forestry and range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So earlier you had mentioned um, that okay, you have a lot of range owners that also own forest land. And so I actually can put a little bit of numbers behind this. Uh, the Rural Technology Initiative, which was an initiative, I think, funded by the state, or it might have been the Department of Natural Resources out of the University of Washington, did a landowner database trend analysis. And it just pulling off all this county assessor information. And they were looking at... It was focused on forest ownership. But what they did was is they overlaid this with satellite data uh, within parcels. And they looked at the percentage of the parcels that had forest land. And then of that acreage, what was the percentage of the acreage that was forested? And what we saw was that about 70% of the total parcel acreage owned by forest landowners was forested. So that means that about 30%, and again, I don't have those numbers right in front of me, um, so don't exactly quote me on it. If anyone's curious, I'm happy to go find those numbers. Um, But about 30% of the land is actually non-forested. Well, what Mm -hmm. does that make it? Well, it it could be residential. Um, You know, maybe it's maybe a non-timbered area. It's a steep slope, something like that. but a lot of the times what that ends up being is it's pasture land and it's open grazing area that's perfect for the combination of livestock or whatever, um, you know, uh, if it's, you know, you're growing hay or timothy mm-hmm. or anything like that. I mean, it, it, these totally mesh up together. Yeah, I had a range professor at the University of Idaho who called trees range weeds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in the course, there's, a, there's a, even a term for forested areas that get grazed, uh, the terms transitory range and transitional range uh, have similar meanings, but they refer to uh, the transitional range w- would would be uh, you know areas within forest that are grazable. And of course, the idea behind it being transitional or transitory is that that's a constantly shifting mosaic, assuming that there's forest yeah. fires and timber harvest patterns you know, you have areas of understory that are being released through removal of some of the canopy periodically, and that's and that's constantly changing. Uh, you know, within a given, say, Forest Service grazing permit, that would be transitory in in that the specific areas that are grazable are moving around, and then viewed collectively, you would call it transitional range, with the idea that over a large area there are always some areas that are going to be more grazable than others. But in general, there is a significant amount of grazing occurring in most Western forests, especially once you get, you know, below the, the higher elevation, more closed canopy, uh, rugged terrain. Yeah. So that's, it's interesting to see a parallel here because when I was in school, we talked about the same phenomenon. We just used a different word and the word in forestry is not transitory or transitional. It is mosaic. And I, and I love the concept of a fluid mosaic, right? Because a mosaic is this broad painting. So, right, the whole forest is the mosaic in and of itself. But a mosaic is composed of multiple fragmented pieces that combine to make a bigger picture. And, and, and a fluid mosaic then is one that is those pieces are changing or maybe a dynamic mosaic. Um, 
And so I love this like kind of moving, swirling photo uh, of the forest above. And, you know, these processes are coming in like bark beetles and fire and, you know, drought or maybe just wind or an avalanche or something comes in and causes the structure of that forest to change. And then when it when it changes, maybe it opens up, you see things like your forbs and your grasses take over and that will become an optimal place for your livestock to be able to graze uh, and, and reach that, you know, high protein, high nutritional forage. Yeah, and that diversity of vegetation structure has pretty significant known benefits for wildlife in particular. In fact, uh, one of the guys I've had on the podcast before, Sam Fuhlendorf, is a range ecologist from Oklahoma, and he's done a lot of work on heterogeneity as a basis for ecological resilience and makes the case, I think a pretty compelling case, that we should be managing for heterogeneity you know, both in terms of deliberate management effort that creates it, as well as trying to maintain uh, ecological patterns and processes that that create it on its own. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting to think about this idea of heterogeneity or diversity or structural diversity because I th- I think the thing that's challenging, you know, like if if we get into the the conversation around forests, right? And I know in the past you've discussed uh, grazing as a, as a mechanism of reducing fire severity. Um, and so if, if we want to talk about wildfires, one of the things that's interesting is, is wildfire is one of the biggest primary drivers of forest complexity and this heterogeneity structure. And so as wildfires are burning, right, like we saw it historically that we always had this constant disturbance process that would drive this. And so then, you know, about 100 years ago, we started to systematically remove fire from the landscape. You know, we, we really changed our logging practices. And because of that, we saw this shift towards a more fuel-rich, fuel-dense forest system. And so now what the problem is, is we're lacking uh, that, you know, that complex fire pattern to create that, that diverse landscape. And so because of that, you know, what we really need to do is, is we need to get back to that diverse pattern. But the problem is, is now we're in a situation where there's, there's not enough commercial wood on the landscape. And we're, you know, dealing with other issues like the layered effects of climate change on top of that. Um, so we, it's like not economically viable to necessarily fit thin everywhere or even go out and harvest everywhere. And mm-hmm. so like, you know, one can make the point that like, it's going to be incredibly costly to get us back to a forest structure that's going to be uh, resilient, you know, this, this idea of heterogeneity through resiliency. Um, but I also think that like, you could make an economic argument that the investment in the beginning would ultimately be a huge boon to the forest wood economy that will in the end, create a system where we can actually have jobs and have people that are continuously out there moving that heterogeneity around, creating that that complexity on the landscape, you know, helping the environment, helping reduce fire severity, helping with, uh, you know, uh, uh, human safety and creating jobs all at the same time. Yeah, that makes me think. You mentioned that you're mostly working with landowners that own less than 5,000 acres. Yeah. Larger than that tend to be, you know, commercial operators. For the ones that are less than, than 5,000 acres, uh, to what extent do they expect some economic revenue from that property uh and and is there you know are there enough um mills around 
to make use of that. So I guess there's a couple of questions oh, there. Yeah, you're One is, a can of worms. <laughs> to what extent, you know, do they expect, I realize that on many forest systems, you know, you may be looking at a 60 year harvest cycle, which is sort of the lifetime yeah. of yep. a single forest manager. Um, yeah, but, but taken as a whole, assuming that not everyone is doing that at the same time, you know, is there enough capacity, uh, you know, for that to be profitable or does somebody have to haul six hours to get to a mill and, and therefore they don't do say a commercial thin. And then going back to the original question, if, if they don't need the money, but people have to spend the money, you know, it's a net, a net economic loss in order to do say a pre-commercial thinning. Yeah. Uh, do those things still get done? Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're opening a big can of worms here and we, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to end up taking this off on some tangents. So you're going to have to help wrangle me back in here. Um, but okay. before that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use this as a plug to say you and anybody listening, if you own forest land should take my coach management forest planning class, because we talk all about this stuff and we can, you can really get some depth out of this conversation because I, there's no way I could cover this in even just 30 minutes. All right. So Let's see where to where to start this this thought process. So I think I think it's highly dependent on many factors, right? So we have to break down what all these factors are. Uh, first of all, y- you got to think about if the if the question is is economics, then what is the economy of scale here? Actually, you knowing before I get into economies of scale, one thing I would say is just look at the values of landowners, right? And and actually it's like less than 20% of landowners act, actually put management of timber at the top of their value list. Mm-hmm. So it's usually a byproduct of something else. Most landowners don't actually intend to buy forest land in the purpose of managing that on a uh on a return interval or a, a rotational harvest system. So that that's important to recognize. And so a lot of our education does not tend to center around it. However, that doesn't mean we couldn't talk about it if that was somebody's goal. What okay, does so, those people say is the purpose in ownership? Just as know, an investment long term? Oh, there, there's a lot of things. The, the National Woodland Owners Association has done some really interesting studies, kind of needs assessments of landowners. And, you know, it, it varies. I would say the top ranking things are... Yeah. So um, legacy investment, owning something that they can put their hard work into and pass down to their children. Um, I'd say habitat. So the goal of buying and preserving land uh, for the sake of either, you know, enjoying the wildlife, enjoying the scenic view, maybe they're hunting on it, whatever the ecosystem services are provided by that. Um we see a lot of recreational, so people buying it so they can do hiking and people buying it so that they can do, um, uh, you know, mountain biking or whatever the, you know, whatever the recreational activity you love to do outside, uh, you can do that. I mean, there's, there's the, the list goes on mm-hmm. and on of what people wa- want to own forest land before they even get to, I'm going to manage this for a crop. Um, but I think that you're, you hit it on the head of why that is. And I think that that's because, you know, people don't usually own enough acreage to be able to effectively manage uh, a sustainable, you know, um, rotating cycle of trees because of that 60 year return interval. Yeah. And so then most most people see that and then they go, okay, well, I don't really, I know I might see one harvest in my lifetime. So that actually gets me to this this concept of economies of scale, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have to think like, so if I want to do a, a harvest, 
I need uh, a certain amount of board feet stored in my trees. And board feet, for anyone who doesn't know, is a volume measurement of trees. It's often what's used by mills to get an idea of pretty much like how much volume of lumber is the mill going to get out of this. So I, I need X amount of board feet. And that's what the mill is going to pay you for. And then it's going to be determined on what's the species of the trees. Because different tree species tend to have different prices based on you know how what their structural integrity is, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure most people here know like pine versus Douglas fir versus cedar, right? We've all had that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have to think, okay, so what's the cost that it's going to take for me to do the logging operation? And so that includes sometimes, but and I would always encourage somebody to hire a consulting forester. And the, and the costs that go with that. And they're going to be the ones that will determine what the board feet on the property is. Then you have to hire the logger. Then you have to hire the processor. Then you have to hire the log hauler. So like that's four people right there that you've just hired that's going to cost you money. So there's like all this upfront cost that you have to get over. So if you want to do a rotational system, then the trick is I have to have enough land that I can pretty much section it off. If you think about it like rotational grazing, it's very similar. So right, rotational harvesting. But it has to be a big enough chunk of land that you can break the cost of getting the, the operation there and then make enough money past that that it is then lucrative for you to do the harvesting in the first place. And so that scale yep. of land ownership coupled with all those other variables is oftentimes too much for people to be able to actually effectively do a rotational harvest. Mm-hmm. So that that's my uh, that's my five second uh, breakdown of that. <laughs> yeah, let's shift to talking in some more detail about the about the podcast. Uh, you say on the on the podcast website that the mission of the Forest Overstory podcast is to investigate topics related to forestry, forest management, natural resources, ecosystem services in the environment, wildlife, and other topics. Uh, if if somebody asked the question, why should ranchers and range professionals listen to the Forest Overstory podcast, what would you say? I think the first obvious answer would be what we've sort of already discussed. And that would be just that many of them do own forest land. So if you're in that category, then I think that the information is pertinent to you. Now, that being said, not everybody who's going to be listening to this and not everyone who's going to be a livestock professional owns forest land. So why would they be the ones listening to this? And I think I, I would think of a couple things. I, I think the first thing is, you know, we have, uh, we have a really interesting society of, you know, transfer of information and knowledge and news and whatnot. And I think that it's sometimes it's really easy to get a, a picture of somebody from the from the eyesight or perspective of some somebody else, and you you might you know you might not get the full story, and so you know for example our first episode that we did we sat down with a fellow named Paul Hesberg, and Paul is a wonderful fire ecologist works for the U.S. Forest Service, and I think that the Forest Service has gotten a pretty bad rep um, over the last 20, 30 years. And, and there's a really complex discussion around why that is. And some of it's warranted and some of it is, you know, there are variables behind it. And so I think that, you know, if you were to take the time to listen to that and listen to Paul talk about, 
you know, the, the history of fire and the history of mega fires, I think it would broaden, you know, our, our perspective and of, of who those people are. Um, and, and hopefully give us, you know, a better understanding of the subjects that are going on. So like, you know, take again, wildfire, for example, we're all impacted by it. Every single one of us, whether or not we own forest land, own livestock land, or live in downtown Seattle, we're all impacted by wildfire smoke. So whether your your uh, ability to make change happens through thinning your forest or grazing your cattle for you know weed reduction, or it's you know going out and making an informed decision in something else in your life, then you know that you're going to hopefully make a better decision because you listen to this podcast. So that I think that would be my answer. Yeah, and just adding my own thoughts to that while you're talking, you know, at least on on Forest Service permits permitted grazing is integrated or it's supposed to be into a big picture forest plan. Uh, and, and so it's important for uh, livestock operators to have some idea of uh, the big picture thinking that goes into those plans in order to manage yeah. grazing. Well, I also am aware that ranches are often rubbing shoulders with foresters, harvest crews. Um, you know, they're often grazing in, in the open areas that have been recently replanted as part of, you know, reforestation after some kind of a timber harvest. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about grazing to reduce fire risk uh, and also sometimes grazing to reduce some of the competition with those, uh, with those new tree plantings, whether we call it prescription grazing, targeted grazing, strategic yeah. grazing. It's careful grazing, <laughs> whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah. And sometimes there's damage and sometimes there's benefits to be had there. But I just think there, the more I think about it, the more I think there's an awful lot of overlap between uh, the world of both range professionals and ranchers, uh, particularly the ones that are grazing in any areas that are forested. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And, and I think that, you know, we're, as we're looking forward to, you know, solving our food systems, right? Because that's, that's a complex topic right there. There is a big discussion to be had for, you know, small scale livestock producers. Um, and, and I love it. Since I moved to Colville, I love going down to the farmer's market. And you'll see a couple of the local livestock producers, they'll be there selling, you know, their cuts of meat and whatnot. And I, I think it's great. Personally, I'd much rather buy my product from them than going to Walmart or somebody else uh, and, and buying something that I don't know. And, and that's, you know, I take that same philosophy. So I'm a hunter. Uh, I love to hunt. I, and the way I've always looked at hunting is it draws a narrative to um, my food. It's actually something we just discussed on our recent podcast with the Kalispell Tribe of Indians and their natural resource department. And uh, so we, we kind of get into that philosophy. And, and I think that, you know, ranchers and livestock uh, professionals, they understand that philosophy. You know, they're the ones that are waking up every single day, going out there, growing that hay, planting those fields, moving those cattle, you know, doing all the work, putting up the fencing. That's hard work. And, and they understand, you know, what it takes to be, uh, you know, a, honestly, what it takes to be a meat eater. Uh, and I think it's great, you know. So I, I have cousins actually that live in Moses Lake who are livestock producers. So I, I've gotten a small snippet of what it's like uh, to to be a livestock producer. Yeah, yeah. Regarding the scope of the of your podcast, Washington's an interesting state because we have, uh, you know, some of the broadest diversity of forest types and ecological types, vegetation types, 
uh, anywhere in the country. You know, we've yeah. got everything from glaciers, high elevation, alpine forest types, you know, clear down to five inch annual precipitation alkali desert and everything in between. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people that are not from the Northwest and don't know about Washington state, just think of Washington as being a place with trees, with forest. Right. And, and would, they would typically be thinking of, uh, you know, mixed conifer, dug fir forest, uh, that is extremely productive, uh, but nearly half of the state and maybe, I don't know, you'd know better than I do. It, it, it looks like maybe a third of the state is drier forest types, uh, on the, on the Eastern half of the state. And much of that is, is more open and, and would look similar to forest that exists in other parts of the West. Uh, to what extent is your podcast designed to be specific to Washington or, you know, Northwest, Intermountain West forest owners? Uh, and how much of it would you say is applicable more broadly than that? Yeah, you know, that that's kind of a, a challenge that I've been facing as I've done the podcast. And that and that's um, you know, as we have these conversations, the com- the complexity of the topics and the regionality of application can be pretty challenging to meet. Uh, especially when even even just the the broad dissemination between east and western Washington is in and of itself challenging to meet. Um and so, you know, a lot of what we've done so far have been more of these kind of big picture, philosophical kind of um, just engaging, thought-provoking conversations with different professionals and different backgrounds. So we've had entomologists on and we've had wildlife experts, we've had landowners on, um, and we've had, you know, forestry field professionals on. So, you know, really, it's more of a perspective type thing. And the the conversation actually always tends to be very similar. However, I I, in the future, what I've thought about doing, and maybe I'll get more of my time funded to produce more podcast episodes is to actually make what I like a kind of a mini series where mm-hmm. we do that, where, you know, maybe my question is, you know, what is Ips Pinei, the pine beetle management in lodgepole pine in the, um, the troughs of uh, the Northeastern Washington, you know, something extremely specific that, that, you know, maybe a, a small mm-hmm. handful owners, uh, landowners might be interested in, um, but yeah, right now it's hard to get down to that level. I mean, you you hit it on the nose because if we look at um, there's there's a map out there that was produced. I actually don't know who made it, but a long time ago they produced a map called the Fire Regime Map, and this is a, a pretty much this uh, matrix of how often fire returns versus what is the intensity and severity of the fire when it comes through, and we see that there's like I think six or seven different fire regimes. Uh, across the United States. And Washington has like six of the seven of them. Mm-hmm. So we, yeah. we're, we're extremely, extremely diverse. I mean, you get over to the, the lake states and in the, in the, you know, the Midwest, you know, most of what they have is these high severity, high return interval grass burnt ecosystems, which are really cool. We don't have a lot of those here in Washington. Um, but, you know, over here, it, it's, it's extremely complex. And so that makes you know, being a landowner and and also makes my educational um, targets very challenging because, but it also makes it fun. You know, I, every time I talk to a landowner, the first question I have is, well, I got to go visit your land because I got to know what we're talking about here. 
Yeah, and I th- I think it's a in general a challenge that applies to any podcast. I mean, one of the one of the obvious benefits of a podcast is that uh, it's it's not place based, and you have access to a really an international audience with the podcast, depending on on how widely you advertise it. But you know, the nature of most natural resource management is that all solutions are necessarily context specific. Yeah. But there are also plenty of things that can be applicable uh, you know, to other areas. And I think we learn a lot about what what we could be doing in our own local context by hearing what somebody's doing, say, in southern Africa, for example. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it, what's the the famous quote of a scientist? It depends. I mean, it yeah. totally does. It, it always depends. But I, I actually like what you said because I think some of the you know, the greatest advancements in technology have come not from thinking within the box, but from thinking outside the box. And and it's hearing, you know, a, a, an analogy of something, like you said, of maybe... So I, I actually was reading a paper in college one time. I was writing it for a class looking at um, large-scale mammal conflicts uh, or large mammal or your, your megafauna conflicts. Uh, and so this paper was specifically around... African elephants invading crops uh, over in Africa. And they, they couldn't figure out what was going on. And so what they ended up trying, and this was written, God, a while ago, uh, they ended up making bumper crops. And so I'm sure everyone listening to this who are, you know, ag people and livestock people are laughing going, oh, yeah, we've been doing bumper crops forever. Well, they didn't realize it over there. And they went over and tried it. And sure enough, the elephants got to the edge of the, of the ag fields they found whatever the you know the resource that was planted right there and it, they stopped right there and they just started munching around that that edge and they never <laughs> mm-hmm. really needed to get into the to the more uh, lucrative crops that were being grown in the interior yeah i think i just learned something i've whatever idea i had in my head about a bumper crop it wasn't that <laughs> well, maybe i have the wrong term so don't call, i'm not the livestock guy i like that idea though of the yeah the this edge effect that uh, and that's commonly used, I would say, in in various kinds of biological or integrated uh, pest control. You know, where you yeah. may attempt to attract a pest into something that's slightly more desirable to them than the yeah. thing that they're damaging, which is a cash crop. Yeah. What are um, maybe give some specific examples of people that you've talked to on the podcast so far? Well, so I already talked about Paul Hesberg. However, I would say for anybody that's interested, Paul is a wonderful fire ecologist. And he did a TED Talk called The uh, Era of Megafires. And you can find that video. Hmm. Excellent video. He's got a website. I think it's called eraofmegafires.com or .org. But yeah, go check that out if you're interested in learning a little about the history of why we're in the wildfire situation we're in today. Yeah, Um, we can put that link in the show notes too. Yeah, yeah, check that out. So we've interviewed a few others. We interviewed a fellow named Ken Bevis. And if anybody has been a part of my programs, Ken is the wildlife stewardship biologist for um, the Washington Department of Natural Resources, an extremely enigmatic person. He's just a hoot and a holler to to sit down with. And he was a fun one to talk to, uh, all about wildlife practices and principles. And then we actually had a really cool podcast. We interviewed uh, two people, Ann Stinson and um, Lugene Clark. And so Ann and Lugene are the, I'm going to butcher this. Uh, I think they're the president or the chair of the Family Forest Foundation. I'm, hmm, I think I'm, you're right. Yeah, I knew I, Steve Stinson pretty well. 
yeah, uh, before he yeah. passed away. And I believe that is the name of the foundation. Yeah. So, yeah. And so if anyone that doesn't know, Steve Stinson was a, a forester with the Department of Natural Resources, huge in the industry, huge in, in getting resources to small forest landowners. He and his father and sister were um, a small forest landowners themselves over in the, the West Side area. And uh, so they started up that program. And, you know, sadly, Steve passed away. And so management had kind of passed over to their father again. Um, but as with, you know, anybody understands successional planning and, and that kind of, you know, the, the, ever, the ever winding clock, it had to move into the next person of the family. And so it moved over into management of uh, Ann Stinson, his sister, and Lou Jean Clark, who is, was his, um, his wife. And they have taken it over. And it's been a, it's been a fascinating journey to, to listen to them. And Anne actually wrote a book called "The Ground Under My F- The Ground Oh The Ground Beneath My Feet," mm. and it's it's a really excellent. The, the first part of it is more of a memoir um, about her growing up and her brother and, and their time on the forest land, uh, which is great. I think a lot of you know a lot of the people that would be listening to this would really enjoy that book just from that personal connection you would have to somebody who has you know grown up on 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 the landscape. And uh, and then she did this really fascinating journey where she actually she wanted to know more about um, where the logs were going after they were harvested, and so she like followed the logs down to one of the local mills, and they, she interviewed a bunch of the the sawmill uh, the sawyers down there um, and the, or the millwrights and you know anybody who's working in the mills uh, talked with them, got their perspective on life, and then follow the logs. And it's this really beautiful journey of her actually going over to Asia uh, and tracking where the logs were going into different countries in Asia uh, and looking at how they perceive the log markets and their their use of natural resources. And it's it's really cool to see, you know, the similarities, but also the differences. You know, they have very different spiritual connections to wood uh, and to their buildings. Yeah, over there, they have... Hmm you know, very interesting spiritual connections to the the structures that they're a part of, you know, whether it's their hmm. temples or, you know, their houses or whatnot. Right. So it, great story. I'm trying to think we we've done. Um, yeah. Dave Peterson. Oh, that's right. That was an, that was a great podcast. If you guys haven't had a chance to check out Dave Peterson. So Dave was, he was an ecologist with the university of Washington actually had a really cool background in, um, uh, just working with the Forest Service and doing some other stuff prior to it, and then got into um, teaching, did some really cool research, and then started looking at climate resiliency. So, like, how do we, you know, we know the climate's changing. And if we look at the last 20 to 30 years, we know it's getting warmer. So, like, what do we do to make our forests more resilient? And and he's written some excellent publications uh, on that. Uh, he was actually a part of the IPCC, so he was a part of the board that actually helped write the report, and then has gone on to write you know the strategies and methods for the forest management section. Uh, so we sat down with him, and we just really talked about what does it mean to to manage for a resilient forest? What does a healthy forest look like? You know, what are the impacts going on in the future? Uh, that was that was an excellent conversation. Great, uh, um, Dave's an excellent person to talk to. Uh, we had, um, let's see, after that, I think we did our, our forest entomology. So we had the both of the Washington State entomologists on. So if you love bugs uh, and you love you know forest health stuff and you want to learn about that, that was a great discussion. And then our last one was Ray Entz and Mike Lithgow with the tribe. So we, we kind of take a tribal perspective into natural resource management. 
yeah, I'm looking forward to listening to some of those. Those are some people, some of whom I've run into before and some of whom I have not and would like to know more about them. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think that um, it's going to be challenging, you know, to have this conversation at such a broad level um, just because, you know, the, the question we always ask landowners when we first sit down with them is, you know, what are your goals? Why, why do you own this land? And I think some people, they know those very clearly. You know, they, they had a clear reason that they went and bought that land and that's their goal. And I think others, you know, maybe they inherited it or maybe they were just like, hey, I, I want to get outdoors, but I don't really know the extent beyond that. Um, you know, my guess is for your audience, a lot of those people, their goal is managing their livestock and owning that, that chunk of timber off on the back 40 probably isn't their, their primary focus. But, you know, think about what that forest land is offering, right? You know, it, you could let it be stagnant. And that that's great. You know, it, it provides its own ecosystem service by being a late serial old growth forest. But, you know, I would really encourage uh, the people listening to this to, to try to think about that question and think about what they want their forest to serve. If it's serving the timber economy, you know, then what's a way we can look at doing a sustainable harvest? If it's reducing fire and, and aesthetics and look, making it look beautiful, you know, what's that going to look like? And maybe it's it's wildlife value. If there's a particular, maybe you're a big fan of the great gray owls, and and you want to make this kind of intricate, messy looking, dense forest that the great gray owl will just absolutely love and nest in. You know, so it really depends on you know what your goals are. And I, I always encourage people to think about that. And and definitely for anybody that doesn't know about our program, you can find out more information about us at forestry.wsu.edu. And we teach all sorts of classes. Uh, we, we're going to be doing one here real soon on kind of an update, a year in review of all the forest health trends that we're seeing. So we'll talk about, you know, the bark beetles, what this last drought year did for our forests. It might be a little bit early to really fully discuss the drought. Um, but yeah, kind of what the last year has looked like. Uh, we do a bunch of classes. Like I said, my coach planning class. So you can you can sit down with us and actually write out a forest management plan, which will, you know, help you get into some certain programs like the Washington Tree Farm program. And uh, yeah, there's, you know, we, we do all sorts of workshops and, and classes and seminars and webinars and just, yeah, we're, we're here to help you guys, you know, make the best decision for your land. Yeah, I would add my, um, my commendation of some of those efforts. For years, I've helped Andy Prelyberg teach some of these uh, big, you know, in-person workshops that he does in the summertime. And I've learned a ton of things from those uh, one example that I frequently mention to people is that I'm a, I'm a firewood cutter and I attended one of the sessions on chainsaw safety. You know, Of course, this is after I've been using a chainsaw as an adult for 10 or 15 years. But the guy yeah. who was teaching the class was a former uh, feller. He was a sawyer. And when he, when he quit logging, he was working for L&I as hmm. the accident investigator for That's a switch of a career logging accidents. <laughs> yeah because, i mean he knows all the shortcuts people take yeah because he's done it he's done it all yeah. anyway he was pretty compelling in in saying you should never start a chainsaw without wearing chainsaw chaps and a, a, a helmet yeah the, the majority of accidents with a chainsaw 
you don't get a second chance to yeah. recover from them because it does so much damage the first time. Uh, and particularly people are often cutting alone. And so when something happens, you're in a remote location and there's not enough time to get first aid before something really bad happens. So I've been a faithful wearer of chainsaw chaps for the last <laughs> 15 years. And I, I feel very good about it. Anyway, no, those, yeah. those workshops have been really useful and I'm usually there to teach something about uh, grazing on forests or um, how to manage around, um, you know, say toxic plants that sometimes occur in forests. Uh, those have been really useful workshops and have very much been a crossover between forest owners and, and livestock owners, many of whom are the same people. Yeah. Uh, I would also add, going back to your comments about trees, you know, even though, even though small forests or even forest patches may not be economically important to a lot of ranchers, uh, the, the, the habitat value of those things has tremendous value. And I think that's something that most ranchers care about. Yeah. Uh, and in the farming community, I don't know, there was a, there was a section in Wendell Berry's book, Jaber Crow, where he talks about this transition between what farming looked like uh, before World War II and how, how that changed structurally after World War II with the advent of tractors, fertilizer, and operating loans. And, you know, he describes, he describes, um, crop farming before that period of time as, you know, people, people had, people grew crops in the, you know, the flatter soils, the places that had deeper soil, it was considered arable and much of the rest of the farm remained in whatever the natural vegetation was. Yeah. And there was this impulse after the war, you know, with machinery, with loans, with a, a push, you know, the pressure on the landowner to make more money, pretty soon we were plowing everything from fence line to fence line, you know, from um, ownership edge to the next ownership edge. And that removed a lot of this transitory habitat, you know, these, these, it removed, it, it homogenized that mosaic, which previously existed even in places that were intensively farmed. Uh, and I, I think we're coming back around to recognize the value of, of some of those, just even if it's a half acre chunk of habitat, it makes a, a very big difference to wildlife and really has no economic downsides for the farmer. So I think there's a lot of benefit in, in people thinking about forests in terms of habitat, uh, even where there's no economic incentive. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think farmers know this better than anybody else, especially if you're a Timothy farmer or a hay farmer. Who hangs out on your farm at dawn and dusk? And that would be the multitude of whitetail and, and mule deer that are that are out grazing. But you'll notice that oftentimes they're they're walking the ridge line or they're moving along, you know, some edge. Mm -hmm. That's because deer need that security, right? They they know that the good food grows in in the you know in the pasture land, in the field area, but they don't want to go all the way out there. They need that that treed area to be, you know, um, safe and to feel safe, to feel secure. And so that's going to offer them, you know, more uh, available habitat and off ultimately offer them their ability to grow their population. So if you're a hunter 
manage that stand for those deer, keep it actually semi-dense because they'll like that semi-dense area in contrast to that more open area in adjacent to it, that's adjacent to it. Uh, and, and you'll see your hunting will just, you know, take off from there. Um, you know, and, uh, so something you said, and I think it's interesting is, is as we decrease the profit margin of farms, what we're doing is we're actually just forcing the farmers to extend the area that they convert out of habitat. And mm-hmm. I don't, like you said, you know, nobody out here is wanting to go clear cut our forest or wanting to, you know, we're, we just got to provide for our families. And, and so it's kind of the, the system that's, forcing people to. So it's really encouraging to hear that, you know, that's slowly changing and, and hopefully there are some bigger changes on the back end. You know, I, one of the things I know that, you know, tip, you're a little bit of a naysayer for it, but, um, the kind of silvo pastoral discussion, you know, how do we intensively graze and, and, you know, do a managed grazing system under trees that were growing as a crop. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, how do you make both of them happen? There's a lot of research that needs to be done there. You know, what's, what's, what sites can we even do it on? Um, you know, what grass species can we grow that are both nutritious and can su- survive in the shady conditions? What, what trees can we manage and what's our density of our canopy? Like all those questions, we don't really mm-hmm. have a good answer for over here. But I, I think there's a, there's, space for a conversation there's space for research to happen especially as we started this conversation saying people are already grazing out on their forest land all that we're trying to do is turn it into a managed system yeah no i i would i'd push back on that just slightly i don't think i'm a naysayer for silver pastoral systems (laughs) it's just not my area of expertise i'm more familiar with you know native landscapes with um and and how to manage livestock within that but i think there's a i think there's a i'm I am personally very interested in the more intensive versions of, uh, you know, tree plus pasture systems and how that can be optimized. Yeah. It makes me think of some interesting stuff I read from Jim Garrish, who is a, he was, he's now in Idaho, but he was formerly University of Missouri mm-hmm. um, grazing expert. And the, the question came up one time about, shade and to what extent is shade beneficial for livestock and they had done some research on this in missouri because the temperatures get pretty hot and it's also right on the edge of where the tall grass prairie fades into the eastern deciduous forest and so in missouri is where you historically had this constant push and pull where the forest advances you have a fuel buildup wildfire pushes it back removes some of the trees you know, the, the, the looks more like prairie for a while. And, uh, anyway, he was saying that with, if you have, if you have a pasture system that has very few trees, you know, everyone knows what that looked like. You can see the rolling grass and there's this lone giant yeah. oak <laughs> out in the middle of the field or around us. It's a, you know, a big ponderosa pine, Yeah, you know, that's a hundred feet tall. It's got a pretty good sized canopy, but if you have, 400 mother cows piled up underneath that one tree. Yeah, it's not going to provide enough shade. It's the only shade around. <laughs> you know, he said the, the ambient temperature around these animals is significantly higher yeah, than that's it interesting. would be if they were just spread out in the sun. Yeah, and that's so interesting. He said you either need no shade or you need to provide plenty of shade so that the animals have room to to spread out. Uh, and I, I would say that just looking from the outside in, uh, there's a growing interest in these silvopastoral systems uh, where we're deliberately 
planting trees in some kind of specific pattern or at a specific density so that it's, uh, you know, complementary to rather than competing with grass production, even in a, a built, you know, agro ecosystem or an agricultural environment. Yeah. So, you know, that makes me think of something, you know, that, that lone tree, it's, it's cool that you dropped, you brought the parallel to the ambient temperature for the animals. Immediately, my thought went to is the soil compaction. You know, that one tree, if you have 300 head of cattle laying underneath that, eventually there is no water that is going to be able to get down to those roots. It's going to just move right away to the side of that. Uh, And eventually that tree will succumb to death from uh, that soil compaction. But, you know, it's going to kind of layer onto that. So there's a, you know, the big conversation right now in the, in the dry land forests, these kind of xeric or, you know, xeric is just another word for dry, or you might hear mesic moist, um, and that are very fire prone is, you know, what is the pattern? What is the structure that our forests look like when we restore them? And, and the, the thought process is, well, we need to create a system that both takes into account habitat, but also fire resiliency and pattern and stuff like that. And there, there's an excellent researcher who now used to work. He, he's probably still a professor with them, uh, with the University of Washington. But he works for the Department of Natural Resources now named Derek Churchill. And Derek put together this uh, manuscript paper, which has now been put more into a management practice called ICO. It's an acronym that stands for Individuals, Clumps, and Openings. Huh. And, and, and I, there's been kind of this internal discussion of what's the application of ICO to manage silvopastoral grounds? Because, and and so I'm going to tie this back into what you're saying with the shade discussion is, so you have these three systems and, and like right now, if you go do a thinning on your forest, everybody loves the look of a park. Right. Like we all love the look of right. these big, beautiful pines. Oftentimes you'll hear them called yellow bellies. These yellow belly pines spaced out. You can run your cattle right underneath it. Beautiful, lush grass in the understory. It's gorgeous. To be honest, it serves almost zero habitat function. So, what do we do that is actually going to create that habitat function? Well, what we need are dense patches that in the habitat argument, the deer would use. Now, in the livestock argument, the livestock would use. And so how many of those, what's the size, and how do we arrange them across the landscape in a way that the cattle would utilize them without having a negative impact on the soil Mm -hmm. there and also increasing that ambient temperature around them? And then the flip side of that is, is then we can go around and we do these kind of tenth, tenth of an acre, fifth of an acre, quarter acre, clear cuts. I mean, it sounds bad, but they're clear cuts. And then what ends up happening is you see the light there increase and and they become Mm -hmm. these almost natural ecosystem pasture lands and Mm -hmm. all the shrubs and the forbs and grasses come up there. And if we're keeping that as a managed system, I mean, this is that's prone nutritional forage ground right there. Habitat wise, that is excellent ground for all of your open, open canopy birds, all of your ungulates, all of your, you know, um, uh, you know, turkeys are going to love that. Really, anything that needs that that uh, high forage um, type mm-hmm. nutrition for their diet. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Because yeah. you don't see a lot of that in those closed ecosystems. Go walk under a completely shaded forest. You won't see many plants growing in the understory. No, there's not a lot of grass underneath a big pine tree. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. A lot it's of a needles, not area. a lot of grass. It's a feeding area. That's right. Yeah. Well, since the two of us I work for the same employer, but haven't spoken much. We could probably spend all day just (laughs) 
<laughs> riffing on ideas that we're trading, uh, but I should probably find a way to wrap this up. A quick search leads me to believe that you can find the Forest Overstory podcast on most podcasting platforms. Is that accurate? That is correct. Yeah. So you can find us on Spotify, on Google Podcast, on Apple Podcast, Stitcher. Um, and then if you're just a person that likes to hop on the computer, just like tips, you can find us at uh, on SoundCloud. And then we do we don't have a cool website like you do, Tip. Uh, but you can find a, 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 a chapter or a page in our website on the forestry.wcu.edu page um, for some information there. Great. Yeah, it, just in case folks have forgotten by now, uh, the guest today on the Art of Range was Sean Alexander. Sean's a forester, extension forester for Washington State University. And um, I'm excited to go listen to the Forest Overstory podcast. And I expect that some of this content would be useful for listeners of the Art of Range. Sean, thanks for your time. Hey, thank you very much. Thanks for having me out. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Music